The world is like a ride at an amusement park. And when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think. Feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hey brothers, welcome back to the Liberation Mentor Show. I'm your host, Nick Regrettis, and I'm speaking to you from Tucson, Arizona today. I hope this audio recording finds you extremely happy and healthy wherever it is you are in the world and whatever it is that you're doing. So I've just recovered from a really long illness. You know, you get people who always make the statement that I don't, I don't get sick or I never get sick. And um, most of the time they're exaggerating or they're just, you know, embellishing. But the honest truth is I, I very, very infrequently get sick. I was trying to think back to the last time I was ill. And the only thing I can remember was nine years ago, uh, I got some kind of virus. And since then, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever been physically ill. So it was really tough for me because honestly, there was a point where I was pretty sure I had coronavirus. I was so goddamn ill. I, I have not been that sick. I don't think ever, actually. So I guess the, the lesson that I learned, which I, I knew, is that your physical health is such a gift and you should never take it for granted. And it's only once it's not there that you really start realizing how, how good you used to feel, right? And so I'm putting that at the forefront of my consciousness again is just to be grateful for feeling healthy and good. I hope you guys do the same. So before we get into today's episode, I wanted to share with you guys something that I've been debating whether or not to to discuss it on, on the show because it's it's kind of personal, but it's it was such a powerful lesson that I had that I, I just want you guys to all be able to share in it. And I'm sure that it will help a whole bunch of you maybe ex- experiencing something similar so for those of you who've listened to the show over the past few months, you'll know that the, at the end of last year, I went home to South Africa for the first time in a couple of years, for the first time since I moved out to the States. And, uh, you know, the, the purpose, a couple of reasons, one was I wanted to go kiteboarding, which is my main hobby. And obviously the more important one was that I wanted to see my family because uh, I hadn't seen them for two years. And just a bit of background, like my mom and dad had a very difficult and conscientious marriage and um I often joke and say I don't even joke I think there's some truth to it but if you if you wanted to choose two less compatible people you would struggle to beat choosing my mom and dad like they were just not a good match on any level and you know like when I got home I I don't know why it's something I thought I dealt with but I arrived home after this long 40-hour journey and I just, my mind just started going, uh, it, it latched onto this one thing, which was anger at my parents, in particular at my dad. I was staying with my dad and I, I just became really angry at him, you know, because my dad is a very cool dude, lovely man, got a good nature, but he made some choices he didn't put his family first and he made some some really poor choices that ended up affecting us. 
a lot. And I was just really angry and resentful to him for this. I just kept dwelling on it. I was like, just so, so deeply angry and just kept thinking, why did you have to fucking do that? How much further ahead in life could I be if you had given me and, our, and my brother and sister what we needed and, and not made those those poor decisions? And, you know, I just kept, had this resentment towards him and I noticed that everything, everything he did was irritating me. Like, I'm sure you guys have all been in that situation when you're with a family member or someone you've known for a long time, you're in close proximity, sometimes they can start to get on your nerves. This was like one of those cases on steroids. Everything my dad did pissed me off. Like, And I was, it sounds so terrible. I'm so ashamed of myself, but my dad's really aged in the last few years. And I was just, I was judging him for it. I was just like, I was angry with him for turning, for getting so old. And I know that sounds horrible, but it's just the way I felt, you know? And then I spoke to my, my younger sister about it. And, um, she she said the best thing to do is write a letter to uh, mom and dad and don't hold back like don't hold anything back in that letter but then don't give it to them and I did you know I spent one night just writing a letter to my dad as if he was sitting next to me saying how why I was angry and what I wish he had done differently and you know during the course of writing that letter something happened to me which was I just realized that my dad had done the best he could and that he was just human. And, you know, I thought I thought back to his, he had some issues in his childhood with his parents and I just saw it as this pattern playing out and I just, on a deep level, I just felt compassion for him and realized that he hadn't, he hadn't done it on purpose. He had just been playing out a pattern. He had He'd just been doing the best he could with with the limited understanding and perspective he had. And I realized it could have been a lot worse. Uh, my dad could have been, for the things he went through in his childhood, he could have been a terrible father, you know, and he was, and he was a great father. He just, as I said, there were some shortcomings, but all things considered, he did a really, really good job. And I just, I, I just let it go because I realized that by judging my father like that, I was... I was judging myself. I had to I had to realize in that moment that, you know, I'm not perfect. I've fucked up loads of times. I've made loads of bad decisions. And who am I to judge him for doing the same? And, you know, guys, the strangest thing happened. There's an expression by one of my absolute favorite spiritual teachers. And he says that when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. If you think about that statement, it's such a powerful statement. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And after going through this exercise and writing this letter and then throwing it away and, and having this deep compassion for my dad, I woke up the next morning and it was the weirdest thing. Everything had changed completely, completely. I just looked at my dad in a completely different way. And everything that he'd been doing for the week before that had irritated me and pissed me off and that it, I had judged him for, now became endearing. It was the strangest thing. Like all his little mannerisms and things that were like upsetting me. Now I just was like, this is my dad and he's such a character and I love him so much. And, you know, I later spoke to him about it and I said, I just said to him, dad, I'm really sorry for the way I treated you this first week. I was really struggling with a lot of things and truth be told, I was, I was angry at you for certain things that happened and he said to me, he said, you know, I think about that stuff every single day. And 
just hearing him say that was the most healing thing ever, just to know, like, he acknowledged that he also made some mistakes. And I guess where I'm going with this, guys, is it's nothing you haven't heard before, but holding on to that kind of stuff, it just hurts you, right? A friend, a friend of mine said it best. He said, like, it's like holding on to a coal when you hold on to anger or resentment. It's such a cliched thing, and we've all heard it a million times, you know, like, it's it, it's so cliched. But it really, really is true. And it, it was such a powerful lesson for me. And I just wanted to share that with you guys. And in particular, if you have a an issue or resentment towards your parents and you're lucky enough that they're still around, I would strongly recommend you you do your very best to put that right as quickly as you can. Because as you know, and as you've been told before, they're not going to be around forever, right? And I'm just, I'm so relieved that I hope my dad's going to live several more years, but, you know, like I'm I'm relieved that if something happened to him now, I could know that we're good. You know, he and I are good. And uh, I'd want that for all you guys, if you're lucky enough to have your parents still around with you today. Wow, that got real heavy. <laughs> anyway, next guest is a guy who, I don't know how I, I found out about him. I think he he's a listener of the show, if I'm not mistaken, and he made a comment on something and then I... I checked out his Twitter profile and he just seemed like a really interesting guy. He's a cybersecurity expert and he was really high up in the Air Force. And um, we just had a back and forth of messages and he seemed like a really cool dude and decided to, to invite him on the show. And it turned out that he was a really cool dude. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. But before we get into it, just as always, I want to remind you guys that if you if you enjoy the show and you want to help me promote it, please go leave a review on iTunes. Or if you're listening to this on your your phone on the podcast app, just take a snapshot of of the episode in the podcast app and post it to Instagram or to to Facebook, and that'll help me get the word out. And I'll appreciate that, guys. Also, you guys know by now I'm doing one to one coaching, which uh, is a very powerful modality for affecting personal change and taking your life to the next level. I have a coach of my own. And it's made massive improvements in the quality of my life. And if you really want to take things to the next level, just head over to my site, liberationmentor.com and hit the button there that will allow you to schedule a free call with me and we'll have a no obligation discussion. I really enjoy those discussions. You don't have to feel, really, you don't have to feel obliged. We'll just have a good chat about what's going on in your life. And perhaps I can give you some insights that can help improve it. Also, if you know on a deep level, that it is time to drink ayahuasca and you'll know if it's time. Uh, I'm having a, a special retreat in California in May at Joshua Tree National Park. There's going to be 12 attendees and it's going to be a very uh, powerful experience. It's also going to be a much more effective experience than the average ayahuasca ceremony. Most of the time when people do ayahuasca, they head off unprepared. Uh, they arrive at a place with a group of very different people. There's very little overlap between the types of people and, and what they're trying to achieve. Then they have this pretty powerful experience and then they leave a day or two later with no integration whatsoever. And so even if they do have a powerful experience, the change isn't long lasting because they haven't integrated what they've learned properly. What we're going to do with this event, which I'm calling the bridge, 
is we will be preparing for a couple of weeks before the event so that you know how to get the most out of the medicine and the ceremony. And also we're bringing, I'm bringing together a group of like-minded individuals. Everyone gets vetted and I, I'm going to make sure everyone's got a similar energy so that we're all pulling in the same direction. And then at the end of the ceremonies, before we leave, there's going to be some integration work. And also we'll be doing some integration afterwards. We'll do, um, you know, I'll stay in touch with you guys and we'll have personal catch-up calls and where I help, in which I help you integrate what you learned, the powerful experiences you learned. Okay, guys, so um, uh, without further ado, let's jump into next episode of the show with Richard Baitlick. Enjoy. Hey, brothers, welcome back to the Liberation Mentor Podcast, and I'm here with a new friend, Mr. Richard Baitlick, who is a cybersecurity expert and a martial arts master as well. Richard, thanks for coming on the show. Good to have you here, my man. Thanks, Nick. That's the first time I've ever been called a martial arts master, uh, and it's definitely not true, So, uh, but I appreciate the intro. You see, now that's how I know you probably are a master because it's only the dudes who really aren't masters who expect to be called that. That's one of the quickest ways I know someone's like not a, a real functional martial artist is when they, they introduce me as something, uh, introduce themselves to me as something like Shihan this or master <laughs> this, or that's when I know. Right? So it's, yeah. a, it's a good sign that you don't take the honorific. I appreciate that. We have a joke at our academy that um, we call somebody Sensei Supreme if they start acting like that or whatever. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I, can't, I cannot stand people like that. Anyway, my man, you've had a, a really interesting journey through life. Um, and the thing that jumps out at me most is that you went very deep into the military industrial complex. You were one of its, <laughs> its best and brightest as from, from what I can tell. You know, you as you said here in, in your your intake interview with me that you you came third out of a class of 1,024 cadets um, when you were in, in the Air Force school, uh, which is it's pretty good. Um, as, as rankings go, that's pretty damn good. <laughs> and so tell me a little bit more about that. You, you, you finished school and you decided, okay, I want to I be a soldier. Well, so I started out wanting to be an astronaut because I was, I was born in the 70s. And back then, if, uh, in my mind at least, the way to prove your worth was to become an astronaut. That was like the most widely respected uh, profession that was out there. And I thought, well, the best way to be an astronaut is to um, join the Air Force. And uh, I wanted to go to MIT my whole life, but um, I got an acceptance to the Air Force Academy before MIT. And so I went, even though it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. I ended up going, you know, I went to the Air Force Academy. I did not really like it. I'll just say that. I thought many times about quitting, but I couldn't. I could not bear the thought of what it would be like to go home and have that shame of of quitting. At least that's how I felt about it. Because I'm guessing your your dad was the kind of guy who found that intolerable. No, no, I don't think my parents would have necessarily uh, voiced that. I think they would have felt that whatever I wanted to do was fine. But I felt the weight of my town. It, which sounds really crazy, but I almost literally had a moment like that in Goodwill Hunting, where the guys are glad that they can't find Will on the last day. You know, when he leaves yeah, to go yeah. wherever he goes, I had a guy come up to me who was on my track team. Um, I, I I spoke at my high school's graduation a few years ago. They brought me back as the as the keynote speaker, and uh, a guy walked up to me and said, "I'm so glad that you went to the Air Force Academy. When you left, we we were so proud of you. We all thought you were sort of like you got out of the hole, right? You got out of this place, <laughs> you know, this blue collar town, but." So, but that was not 
what I wanted to do. And uh, the day I left the Air Force, uh, I got my picture taken and I just have this huge grin on my face because I'm so happy. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that I wasn't happy about the work that I was able to do in the Air Force. And I felt like uh, you know I made a real contribution and I was involved in the very earliest cybersecurity work um, that we were doing and information warfare and supported some of some of you know, the nation's activities overseas. But yeah, I don't ever really feel like I... I said, I, I want to be, I want to be this, like, I want to be an airman, you know, mm-hmm. that wasn't something for me. It was, it took me a long time before I figured out that that wasn't what I wanted to do and to try to do something different. Fair enough. Now, when, when did you realize that it wasn't for you? What was the, can you remember the, an initial memory or was it just a general feeling like I'm not supposed to be here? Yeah, probably the first day. <laughs> although, although everybody goes through the same experience, you're, you're sitting on the bus you're driving up to the academy. You're all looking at each other like, what are, what are we doing? You, the bus stops. A cadet comes on and just... Well, actually, no, no, excuse me. The chaplain comes on. The chaplain <laughs> says, uh, you're going to get yelled at. Things are going to be really bad, but don't worry. God is with you. And then walks off. And of course, at that point, everyone looks at each other like, oh, what did we just get ourselves into? <laughs> sure enough, the cadets come on and just yell, scream, just go crazy. And uh, you know, at the end of a very, very long day of in processing, you're you're rubbing your your now shaved head, and it's a universal feeling like, what am I doing here? What you know, w- what's going on? Um, but for me, it was never there was never a question of quitting. I mean, so many people quit around me, I and mean, the class starts with about fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred people. So you mm-hmm. lose you know um, a lot of people. In fact, we were one of the classes that had a, a bigger dropout rate. Uh, I don't know why, but that's just what happened. But I guess at the end of it, you know, you're a little bit more of a cohesive group because you've you've made it through all those trials. Yeah, I mean, I just as I've said on the show before, I'm fascinated by by the military. Um, I'm not sure if I've actually mentioned this specifically on the show, but when I was 18 in my final year of high school, I was I wanted to go to the I wanted to be a soldier, so I found out the the best military at the time by um, most standards uh, was the Israeli Defense Force, right? Because of, you know, they're surrounded by people that want to kill them and they have to like protect themselves and whatnot. Um, And so like I started making inquiries into how to get into the Israeli Defense Force. And then my mother just said to me, she's like, you do realize that there's a war going on in the Middle East. This is the stupidest thing you could possibly do. And I decided against it, but still to this day, I've always thought, if I'd done things differently, or if I could go back and do things differently, perhaps I'd go into the military because to me, at least there's something kind of, um, I, I, look, I, I don't want I was going to say romanticized about it, but I realized that the truth is often not that romantic. And when you're next to your buddy, who's just had his intestines blown out or you've just had shrapnel in your eye or not, that's not necessarily like the um, recruitment videos make it out to be, but still is to me, there's something that's always been cool about the, I think it's the group dynamic more than anything. Like you've got this band of brothers, you know, that you, you bond with and you join with and these guys have your back. And it's whenever I, I see groups of soldiers, it always seems like they're at this giants kind of summer camp, right? Obviously not when they're fighting, but just generally like they're, you know, they're always breaking each other's balls and they're hanging out in the rec room and like, I don't know. Just some, there seems something cool about that. Did you did you experience any of that? 
Oh yeah. I mean, there, the sense of community you have is really not like many other things I could think of. Mm-hmm. Um, it does, you did, you did actually did a very well, uh, a very good job of describing it. it. It comes from that collective stress that's put upon you. And part of it comes from the basic training experience where they, the military is a machine that takes in people and puts out a product that is, that has been brainwashed to think a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I know that some people who, especially those probably who are still in the military are probably a little you know, bristling at that, but mm-hmm. it really is. I mean, we think about the Jodies, you know, these, these songs you sing when you, when you uh, march and they're talking just about horrible things and it, it becomes normalized, right? You're in, it's sort of treated as this is what you will do now that you're in the military. And, and for my class, uh, I joined in 1990. Within a month, we, uh, or Saddam Hussein had invaded Iraq and by the end of the year, or uh, very beginning of the following year of, of January of 1991, uh, that's when the first Gulf War started. Hmm. So it went from this this organization that hadn't really done a whole lot since Vietnam. I mean, sure there had been Panama and a couple other things, but mm-hmm. suddenly we're in a full-fledged shooting war where there are seniors and juniors that I know who have friends who are now flying over Iraq, dropping you know ordnance, <laughs> and wondering if those guys are getting shot down. It it became so real very you know very quickly and it made me think of you know there were rumors of would we get commissioned early like it happened in the civil war because we were in a, a real war at that point and we hadn't been in a real war since uh, well actually people had been commissioned early in world war ii and and uh, mm-hmm. i don't know about vietnam necessarily but and as far as that you talked about sort of the romantic part of it i think that's true a good antidote to that would be to watch uh, there's a series of of movies or documentaries on um by National Geographic called Inside and then Inside the Gulf War, Inside Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Inside mm-hmm. Uh, Vietnam War. My God, after I watched the Inside the Iraq War one, I talked to some guys at the uh, my BJJ school and just said, you know, I, I had no idea it was like that for you guys. And I just want to say thank you for what you went through because, mm-hmm. I mean, these guys talking about exactly the, the sorts of things you mentioned and mm-hmm. it's, you know, thankfully I, I never went through that being in the Air Force, but for the... For the you know, men and women on the ground, uh, it's a whole other story. Yeah, no, I, I can't. I mean, you even mentioned, mentioned to me um, in your, in your interview that, that you have, you feel that you and some of the others who went through the, the training at the Air Force Academy have some form of PTSD just from the training. And you, you t- you're telling, you, you mentioned yeah. a story where you got picked up by the neck by some yeah. sort of guy. And can you, can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. So, when I went through, all cadets went through a program called SEARI uh, or SEER, uh, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. And the goal is to teach air crews who get shot down how to handle life uh, or how to handle what happens after you're shot down and mm-hmm. then how to uh, survive the prisoner of war experience and wow. you know, potentially escape. In that, so it's a three week program, you learn all sorts of stuff. The most intense part of the experience is when you're in the POW camp, mm-hmm. and uh, I can't really get into details about it. I mean, I'm sure people have revealed things here and there, but um, one the part that I'm referring to in that story was uh, I was picked out of the crowd and told to be the like uh, read the announcements from the camp commandant, and it would be things like you know crew A will report to this pit and dig a hole and whatever, and they kept trying to trying to force me to read anti-American stuff. Hmm. Um, and then finally they gave me this list, you know, and every time I'd say no, and they'd hit me in the back of the head and I'd say, you know, whatever. Well, they finally gave me this list. It was nothing but anti-American diatribes. And I took a look at it 
And you remember, this is all a training environment, but you, you quickly forget that it's a training environment when you're in this horrible, horrible outdoor camp and whatever. Yeah. A couple of shots to the back of the head will do that as well. Oh, yeah. I, I, so I look at this, this thing they want me to read. And I say, I read the first line and then I immediately switch into the code of conduct. So I am an American fighting in the forces which guard my country and our way of life. I will, I'm prepared to give my life in their defense, Article 2. And the whole camp goes crazy. All the, all the cadets start a riot. They're trying to break out, just, just overpowering the guards. It's like completely beyond what we're supposed to do in a training environment. <laughs> so the commandant comes out of his hut and looks around. He's like, what the hell is going on in here? And he, he looks at me because he sees I had the microphone, right? And so his guard walks over to me, picks me up by the throat. And this guy was a seven-foot-tall basketball player from mm-hmm. the class of 93. He slams me up against a wall. And the camp commandant pulls out his pistol and puts it to my head and says, now you die. And I remember like just dangling there thinking, now I know how I die. It was just, <laughs> that was just it. Uh, and then, you know, eventually he put, put me down. They took me and a couple other people they thought were the ringleaders. They stuffed us underneath the platform that the commandant would walk on, like, mm-hmm. like stacking bodies like cordwood, like into a box. They shut Jeez. it closed. And then the commandant gave a speech as to why we were all horrible criminals. And one of the guys who was stuck in there with us, he was totally claustrophobic and just freaked out, just went crazy. So we grabbed his arms and his legs to hold him so he wouldn't kick and thrash and mm-hmm. you know hurt other people and himself. So that's just a little flavor of uh, oh. <laughs> what that sort of uh, training was like. But obviously, it's nothing like actual combat. It's just they're trying to prepare you for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of stressful environment. Yeah, it still sounds pretty fucking intense, to be honest. <laughs> oh. So you, you've mentioned that one of the things you've learned to do is listen to the small still voice right which i i mean that's what i'm a, a big it's a big part of what i'm about is just a lot of what i do is, is designed to help me be able to hear that voice more and and kind of turn like get a better signal to noise ratio and you've said here it's important to be the person you are meant to be and not the person others want you to be i'm guessing that that played into your ultimate decision to leave the Air Force is that you were hearing this, that small, still voice more and more saying this wasn't for you? Yes, to a certain degree, although I didn't even, there, there were many things I didn't learn about myself until I'd say within the last 10 years, or maybe even more recently in some cases. Um, that was one of them. I, I had no idea that it was possible to decide what you want to do for yourself and then to craft a life around that. My entire existence to that point had been, and this is going to sound extremely ridiculous when I say it out loud, but this is the way it was for me, figuring Mm -hmm. out what other people expect of me and then doing that the best I could. And that was my life for years and years and years. So, Where do you think that came from though? I think it came from... Uh, it was some sort... You know, I think a lot of what we feel is, is, is somehow based in evolution. And I think I had a strong evolutionary drive to be useful to my my tribe, my collective. And it wasn't. I'll just I'll I'll say this about my parents and the way that they raised us. My parents had a uh, a good thing. Uh, good things come to those who wait. Mentality. It wasn't a go out there and grab it and figure out what you want to do and go get it. Like this, which is one of the reasons why I gravitated towards your podcast is because you were very much into that. So it was a wonderful antidote for mm-hmm. the programming I had as a kid. So, you know, you can't do that unless you even know what your interests are. And I, sure. I remember at one point my wife said, you know, what, what are you interested in? Like, what do you want to do? And I, like, she had a bucket list that was like a million things long and I maybe had three, you know, mm-hmm. and it, 
took me a while to figure out what those things were. And, and actually, martial arts was one of them. I had done martial mm-hmm. arts um, for a decent period of time. Never, I was never any good. I never stayed with anything for a, you know, very long because I was hopping around in the Air Force. But once I got back into that in, in 2016, that was really you know, uh, kind of a reawakening of, of some interest. So yeah, just first of all, discovering that there is that voice and then figuring out how to listen to it. And it, for me, at least it is small. I, I think for some people it's loud and it drives them. And maybe that's when you get into like maybe some, some, uh, out of balance people, but for me, it's small. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other part for me was realizing I was an introvert. I had no idea even what that word was until I read the, the book quiet, even though my entire life had been built uh, or it had been a series of experiences where I realized, or I should have realized that I was introverted, but I didn't even know what that was until I read uh, Susan mm-hmm. Cain's book. Yeah. So funny enough, one of my clients, um, we were just discussing this the other day. He was mentioning how uh, he did, he did a test that classified him as an introvert. And to me, one of the things I've, I, I'm a little bit resistant to is any sort of system that classifies individuals as X or Y or Z. Yeah. Um, because I feel it pigeonholes them and then it, it kind of limits them in a large way. You know, there was a point where the classification system of introversion and extroversion just didn't exist, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, did that mean that they were still introverts, right? And are there, are there people out there that are walking around today that are actually going to be classified as something in the future that we don't yet have words for? And when mm-hmm. that classification appears... Will it change the way they they move through the world? Because now they expect to to be beholden to this this set of uh, characteristics that they've been deemed to have. Yeah. And so I'm a little bit I'm always a little bit skeptical to limit myself or others with labels like that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that's that's very wise. Uh, I use it as a shorthand for um, remembering where my energy comes from, and for me, being out in public. Uh, making, uh, getting on stage, that sort of thing, uh, mm-hmm. that that drains my energy. Whereas my understanding is that more extroverted people that builds their energy up, and it it took me years to realize this. I, I would, mm-hmm. um, I had a fairly public life as a computer security person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've pulled back from that now because I realized how how difficult that is for me. But I would do things like teach by myself a class of a hundred people all day long. I would have people follow me to lunch. They would follow me. They would come to me during a break. I had people even follow me into the bathroom. And I would be in the (laughs) stall and they would be talking to me outside the stall. So we're talking (laughs) nonstop engagement for a 10-hour day. And then I would go back to my hotel room and I would absolutely crash. And I didn't understand any of it. I didn't know what that that meant. And what was even worse was... And this is at the point where I I almost lost it. I was doing consulting work that was very similar to that high stress environment, uh, responding to intrusions, you know, hackers who had broken into companies. You're under constant scrutiny by the client. You're dealing, you know, you're dealing with intruders in a foreign country who are actively trying to stop, you know, you know me removing them. And then I go through all that all day long. And we're talking like 16 hours, like just nonstop. Wow. And then I go back to my, uh, it wasn't even a hotel room. It was a, it was like a house where all the consultants were. And I, after a few days of that, I almost lost my mind. I called my wife and said, I can't do this anymore. I can't be on all day and then be with this group at night. And mm-hmm. she's like, 
tell your boss, right? She's, she's very much a go out and get it person. Yeah. So I told my boss, he's like, oh, go ahead, get a hotel room. I don't care. You know, we're making so much money on these engagements. You know, stay wherever you want. And thank mm-hmm. God he understood what I needed and didn't just say, oh, just, you know, suck it up and go into the, you know, go back into the community mm-hmm. house there or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's a shorthand for me to know um, where my energy comes from and how to rejuvenate. Mm. The, the thing that came to mind while you were relating that story is, uh, especially when you mentioned the guys following you after your lectures and following you into the bathroom, do you think that if you had had stronger boundaries, you could have avoided a lot of that? Yes, you. You. That is a. So, if anyone's listening and they need, uh, they're wondering about your services. That's another word that will come up in in this sort of interaction. Boundaries are so important. I I teach it to my kids. Right, my kids. Uh, they have similar issues. So figuring out what your boundaries are is really important. And in more recent years, when I've been requested to speak or do certain things, I've told people, this is, this is when I'm available. This is what I'll do. I will not go to your party the night before. I will not do this. Mm. If you do book signing, yes, I'm happy to do that. So I do set up a situation that I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And as a result, both parties are happy. Well, maybe not that they're not completely happy because they're not getting me to do everything they want me to do. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I'm otherwise I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't go, right? I just figure out a reason not, not to go there. For so sure. boundaries are, yeah, absolutely yeah. important. One of the things I've realized, Richard, was actually my, you know, every year you kind of have one or two big understandings about the nature of life, right? Especially if you're open to it. I guess not everyone does, but. If you're an open-minded, um, constantly evolving, constantly learning person, you should have have at least one or two of these insights. And for me last year, the big insight was it's just as important what you say no to as it is what you say yes to. It's just as important to define what you don't want as it is to define what you do want. And and that's and I think like on even on a, on a deep philosophical level, like the universe is watching to see what you'll put up with, or what you'll accept, right? So very often people say they want a certain thing out of life, but they'll continue to accept something else. So the universe doesn't really care what you say you want; it's watching to see what you actually your actions, like what will you continue to to put up with. And um, that that was a big one for me. It sounds like you've learned that lesson as well. Yeah. Yeah, it it is difficult in my line of work, but you know, one way I actually put that into practice was I I got exceptionally burnt out uh, several years ago, mm-hmm. and I I basically just walked away from my entire field. I said I can't handle I can't handle this community anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, it sort of reminds me if, if you've seen like the original Planet of the Apes when Charlton Heston is is captured and he gets his voice back and they put him in the cell and they're spraying him down with the with the fire hose and he says it's a madhouse. <laughs> that, that's kind of what my community my, my cybersecurity community is like. There are things that we do that anybody in the outside world would say that is I can't believe you you do that. That is ridiculous. And I I point it out and uh, I get a lot of heat for it. And I just got tired of it. I said, you know, I'm mm-hmm. tired of playing this game. So I basically left. And my wife was, you know, I said, I'll, I'm going to, you know, I will 100% take care of the kids. Um, my wife had wanted to get back into the workforce for 12 years. So it seemed like the, she was ready to go. She's like, this is perfect. Let's do it. Let's do this. And mm-hmm. I said, okay, I'm saying no to this whole cybersecurity stuff. What do I want to do? You know what? I would like to self-publish a book because I had written other books, you know, and published with other publishers and such. Mm-hmm. And I want to write about something completely different. 
And I had met this lady from my, uh, when I was studying Krav Maga, she was one of the uh, students there. And she said, I would like to write a book, but she's Polish. So English isn't, you know, her first language, but she knows quite a bit about stretching. So I said, well, I'll tell mm-hmm. you what, I'm Polish. I can understand you, not the, the language, but you know, we, we get along fine. Let's publish this book together. And we just, it took a year and we published the book. That's and, cool. You know, yeah. it's not selling crazy, <laughs> but yeah. it's something that I'm really proud of because it was completely out of left field. And uh, it was it was a nice antidote for that whole uh, burnout process. That's great. So I'm, I, I want to just touch on another thing, which with regards to burnout, which is, I don't, I'm not speaking from a high horse here because it's something I've experienced as well. And I, I hit a similar point to you with the certain industry where I was just like, I've just had enough of this. And um, I, I just, I was uh, disabused of the uh, romanticized beliefs I held of the industry. And what I've realized is that uh, people become burnt out ultimately because it's, it, I believe it's due to a lack of self-worth or an intrinsic lack of inability to see their self-worth because that's the only reason you'll keep doing things uh, that drain you of your energy and push you to a, to a limit is you're worried about what's going to happen if you say no, right? If you put the boundary in place, what will happen? Like maybe I'll lose my job or my boss won't respect me or this person won't like me. But what it comes down to is at the, at the end of it all, you, your opinion of yourself has to be higher than your, than, than others opinion of you, than the community's opinion of you, than the industry's opinion of you, because what an industry will do is it will chew you up and spit you out. That's just what industries do. Right, that's what the military will do. It's what uh, a big uh, a company will do. It's like I've seen it in, in so many different, especially with a lot of the people I work with. That they they literally give their all to a boss or a job or a family or something, and that entity will just suck them dry. Right, and it's only when they get to a point where they say, "No, I'm I'm worth more than this. My energy is valuable. My time is valuable. What do I want out of life?" when they hit that point, it's usually that's when they realize that they're burnt out because that's when they realize that something's got to change. Right. Would you say that's similar to kind of what you went through? So I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, I've seen it myself. Um, it was not that way with me, but, um, I have seen so many people, particularly in the military. Um, I, I'm not going to name any names, but there was a, a lady who was, who worked with my wife at one point who she just gave everything to the air force, um, mm-hmm. you know, sacrificed family, uh, just everything. And w- you know what happens? You reach your retirement age and they literally kick you out. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there is no way to stay in the military past a certain point. And now you look at yourself and you say, well, now what? Um, was it worth it? Did I, you know, of course you served your country and, and everyone is thankful for that. Um, mm-hmm. But unless you were doing it in alignment with what you wanted to do, that's a really you know, that's a horrible burden, I think. Sure. I, I think in my case, it was just more... I wasn't so when I first started, I was excited. It was new. I was learning. I felt like I was making a difference. Uh, you know, all the things that you see wrapped up around really being excited about something. But mm-hmm. near the end, I just felt like, you know, I've, I felt like I've gone as far as I can potentially with mm-hmm. this. And I feel like every time something appears in the industry, I've already had to deal with it to a certain degree. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to say like I know everything. It's not not that at all. It's just that after a while, you feel like I think I've gotten what I need to out of this. And yeah. so, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm really excited about my, my side projects, right? Is that these, these are things that I know very little about, and yet I'm not being judged 
um, for that lack of knowledge. Or if, yeah. if, if I am, I really don't care. Like, so what? I just started in this. Yeah. You know, it's like being a white belt. Um, that's the best belt to have because you can do whatever you want and people expect you just to do that, right? It's not, uh-huh. they don't expect you to be, to know what you're doing. Sure. And it's, and the thing it, is that this phenomenon of when you describe being, not bored by it, but like, I mean, I, I, if you've been in, in any industry for about 20 years or so, yeah, you you do become jaded and you have seen most of the stuff out there. Obviously, there's always new stuff. And you, as you said, you, you can't know everything. But it, this, is ex, this is an extremely common phenomenon I subsequently found out because, you know, when I, I got to a point in one of my careers where I was getting, I was getting kind of bored and I was feeling guilty. I was like, how could you, how could you feel this way? And what I realized is that almost any professional who's done a good job and who's, who's really dived deep into something and given their all, after about 20 years, they start to hate what they've been doing. You know, like look at the average lawyer who's been lawyering, lawyering for 20 years or the average accountant or engineer. They're all, they all want to do something else, right? Because it's just the nature of human, the human experience. It's the nature of what it is to be human. Like you master things. And you start craving new challenges and new horizons and you just, you want to be excited by what you do again. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a sign that you're still alive. It's the dude who goes and does the same thing for 45 years and has started hating it after 20 years. That's the guy who's fucked, excuse my French, because he, he couldn't listen to that little still small voice, right? Because he was so worried about paying the bills or what his family would say or what, uh, the community would think, you know what I mean? Like you didn't have the courage to step up and change. So yeah, man, I, I totally get where you're coming from. It's, it's, and it's more common than you'd expect. Oh, what you're describing is what happened to my dad. He got trapped. And, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really understand it quite so much mm-hmm. when you're a little bit older, when you're a teenager and you can actually kind of like pay attention to what your parents are thinking and such. And then even later, when you know, I'm a young adult, my dad was still working. He was still working because he had the mortgage and the bills and all that stuff, and he hated his job. He couldn't. He couldn't wait to to retire, and he mm-hmm. was just playing out those years. And I remember thinking, I don't. I don't want to end up like that. Yeah. You know, so I. Uh, it, it's tough to have that feeling, like when you're in your 20s, and then to be in your 40s and remember, oh wait a minute, I didn't want to end up like that. Am yeah. I? Am I? Like, am I stuck here? Sure. Um, so thankfully, I was able to to extricate myself from that. And I think what people don't understand is that what a lot of people haven't internalized is that we live, especially if you live in a place like the United States or Western Europe or Australia or New Zealand or any other first world industrialized nation. The fact is that you live in a, in a society in which you don't have to compromise when it comes to career. There's so many things for you to do. Right? There's so many ways to make money. There's so many services that are demanded. You can make your own career up. You can, you can create a whole new category if you want to. You know, it would be one thing if you lived in West Africa in some destitute village somewhere. Then you, then you have to take what you can get, right? Sure. Yeah. If you, you know, like if, if the only thing going, the only gig out is like wheeling concrete blocks from one part of the village to another, you've got to take it, dude. Sorry. Like that's, it's, I'm sorry to tell you, you're going to have to, you're going to have to suck it up. But we don't live in a world like that. Yeah. Like there's, there's so much opportunity. And all it takes is a willingness and courage, those two things. And you can, you can have pretty much whatever life you want. And I think a lot of people fail to see that. And it's one of the messages I really try to impart to people. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I, I always think, you know, my great grandfather came from Poland to this country and he did work in the factory his whole career so that we could have, you know, generations later, we could have this life. Sure. Um, I think, you know, if I were to give some advice to, to young people though, Please do. Um, from the, you know, from the financial standpoint, plan for this. Think about, you know, what if I wanted to completely change my career in my late thirties or early forties, knowing that I'm going to be a beginner I'm not going to have the skills necessarily that are going to pay for, you know, the same quality of life. So if you put money aside thinking, you know, I'm going to need this to make my rent as I'm transitioning to have my own business or whatever you want to do, you'll be better off. So it's almost like not just uh, planning for retirement, but planning for a second career and thinking about, Mm -hmm. and I know this is really tough. I, I had it so, I mean, I was so fortunate, right? I mean, the, the, Blessed United States taxpayer paid for my academy experience. So I didn't have any loans coming out of college. And I know mm-hmm. young kids these days, it's it's totally different with the amount of loans that they're carrying. But mm-hmm. you know, once you get out, out, out from under that burden, if you can think about, you know, have some, you know, if you think you're going to be the person who's going to want to have a, a different career later on, which I think everybody will, plan for that. And don't just and don't just, you know, live, live up to, you know, spend up to your maximum. And then uh, you know, be, essentially, be paycheck to paycheck. It's a, uh, mm-hmm. it's just like you know, it's you're trapped basically. Yeah, that's excellent advice, Richard. Truly, I wanted to ask you um, this last topic that I wanted to discuss is um, you're an Eagle Scout. Is that correct? Yes, yes, I am. So I, I remember when I was a kid, my dad, my dad grew up in um, Beirut in Lebanon, and he was a huge Boy Scout. Like I remember when I was a kid, he would always tell my brother and sister and I these stories of the adventures he and his buddies had. And <laughs> one night he took us to the local South African equivalent Boy Scout thing, um, which to be fair was pretty lame. Like I was kind of let down by it and yeah. never really <laughs> got into it. Um, especially after hearing these stories, my dad had told me, I mean, my dad, what was some of the stories? Like he would go with his, his buddy, like the little scout troop would it'd be him and like three buddies. And they'd go camp somewhere like 50 kilometers away from where they lived on their own at age like 10. Yeah. You know, three or four of them are just going like, you know, that we're going on a Boy Scout trip, right? And then I'd get to this Boy Scout thing, which was held in a school hall somewhere in this little suburb where I grew up in. And it was as far from that as you could possibly imagine. You know, <laughs> right. it was like 12 Scout leaders to every like five kids type thing, like constant yeah. micromanagement. And I just want to know a little bit more about your, your scouting uh, experience and if you're still involved with it. And I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. Sure. Yeah. I, I joined Scouts when they were Cub Scouts. So nowadays mm-hmm. there's a much, you know, you could get involved much earlier, but back then it was Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. And I got involved, I think it was probably fourth grade and I was a Cub Scout and uh, eventually I crossed over and I became a Boy Scout and I was a Boy Scout up until I turned 18. I went through the, sim- the same uh, process that a lot of teenage Scouts go through though, that you sort of lose interest in your, your teenage years. Mm-hmm. But um, I did go to Scout Camp every year, which was a combination of terror and uh, it's some you know some years were great, other years were I can't you know can't believe I survived that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not talking like any sort of illegal activities that you see with scouts today. You know, terribly. I mean, just yesterday the Boy Scouts declared bankruptcy because of all the abuse <laughs> claims they're trying to process. So. I didn't even know that. Wow. Oh yeah, but thankfully I never had any of that. Um, I was also an altar boy, incidentally, and thankfully Damn. again I had no problems with that. Man, um, you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, I, I am. I, I feel. I feel like I am. But yeah, so I was. A, I was a scout, and um, honestly, I 
I feel, and I've, I did a blog post on, on my blog about this, I feel like everything I needed to know about leadership, I learned as a patrol leader. So a, a patrol leader is a, per, is a scout who's in charge of a group of boys, like about you know, 10 or 12. And uh, it is the functional unit of a troop. So troops will do things, but when, you, when you're trying to like get something done as an activity, the patrol is what does it. Okay. And I learned, you know, I learned how to communicate with people. I learned how to be fair. I learned how to set directions. I mean, everything I needed for the military and every other part of life, as far as trying to be a leader, I feel like I learned as a patrol leader. And I exercised it at the, at the local troop level. And then when we went to the Jamboree, which, you know, was the worldwide gathering of scouts uh, in 89, I went and I was a patrol leader there. And I even, I even had to deal with, uh, with violence, there was a kid in my patrol who decided he was going to challenge me for like being the patrol leader, which makes no <laughs> sense. I mean, I don't even understand how that could be. I, I even remember his name now that we're talking about it, but I won't say mm-hmm. it. And I had to fight this kid at the jamboree. Like it was just, you know, the, a scramble wrestle type thing. And I had no training or anything, but, uh, and I was a small kid and skinny and everything, but apparently I acquitted myself well enough that I was able to maintain control of my patrol. <laughs> So, I mean, there was even that aspect to it. And there were people in scouts who, who had various sorts of issues that, you know, I didn't understand at the time. And years later, I kind of understand, you know, they, were, they had trouble at home and everything. So just that whole maelstrom of, of what you're involved with as a scout, as a young person. And if you are in a troop where the, the leaders are hands off and they say, you know, it's a boy run troop, the, the kids take care of it. Uh, you learn quite a bit. And that same sort of structure, it, it, I, I use the same thing everywhere you know i was when i was a captain of the track team or or when i was um uh at the academy and i had a uh, not a patrol it was a, a flight is what it was called you know i had a flight of, of different cadets of different ages so <laughs> yeah and my my eagle scout project was uh, i created a, a road race for a friend of mine who had died when we were freshmen she had uh, childhood leukemia and so i created a road race to raise money for her her scholarship fund and we did it one year and that was my Eagle Scout project, but then we did it six more years, even wow. when I wasn't there. The, when I was at the academy, the, I had some friends who ran it for me while I, or set it up while I was gone and then I would come home and we'd do it and then I'd go back out to the academy. So Yeah, it sounds like you learned a, a lot of good lessons about, uh, and, and I get it. I mean, there's, uh, coming back to the beginning of the conversation, that's similar kind of thing to, to what I was trying to identify about what looks cool about the military is it's this ability to hang out with your friends or hang out with a group of like-minded individuals, um, you know, in a setting that tests you or allows you guys to bond. And I guess maybe being an Eagle Scout or a Boy Scout is a, a probably a, an easier way to get a, get that fixed than signing up for the military, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I, I almost didn't make it. I, I almost quit. Um, and then I realized, someone had told me once, they said, being an Eagle Scout is the only thing you can do as a kid that belongs on your resume. And if you remember mm-hmm. my whole, like my childhood attitude of, I need to prove myself, I need to prove my worth. Then it was like, well, of course I have to do this. This is expected of me. But mm-hmm. it is one of the few things I can, I remember doing, not necessarily from the most natural or self-beneficial um, place, like it would, would have been much better if I had sort of had this real, you know, deep inner Zen about why I was doing it and so forth. But it is something that I look back and I am proud of what I was able to do, mm-hmm. uh, particularly with my, with the project. You know, I, I just remember going to the, uh, going to the service for my friend and uh, seeing all, all of my friends who were there who were so sad. 
and I remember thinking, I, I have to do something. I have to do something to, to turn this, you know, what's uh, such a moment of sadness. Is there any way we could have a positive um, celebration of, mm-hmm. of this girl, Julie Sandberg, of, of her life? And uh, that, was, that was where my project came to me, even though um, I had tried three other projects and they'd all been shot down for various reasons. And I was mm-hmm. sort of running out of time. I had to come up, come up with something that would be, uh, be acceptable. So, you know, it, was, it did work out. That's cool. Richard, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, man. If, if those listening want to follow you on social media, what's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, thanks, Nick. I, I, thank you so much. I, I I was so nervous about this, honestly, because I think you do such great work, and uh, I respect how you're able to help people. And I just felt like, what a poser am I? What am I going to say that anybody nah, would care about? But no, nah, you, uh, you you did uh, made a great showing of yourself. Truly, you've got a a very good presence on on air, and and I think you shared a lot of wisdom. So thank you so much, my man. Cool. Well, if, if anybody wants to find me, my last name, there's only myself and my dad, and my dad's not on social media. So if you look for Richard Baitlick, you'll find me. Uh, what's probably easy to remember is TAO Security. So uh, Tao Security, you'll find all of that. Uh, and if you want to see the thing that I'm really super excited about right now that I'm working on, and you're sort of a martial artist or a history person, uh, I'm working on this thing called Martial History Team. Uh, and the goal with Martial History Team is to promote uh, sound evidence and good uh, sources for martial arts history. So none of this, like you know, Chinese kung fu is five thousand years old because my sensei's nice. only stuff. It's we're, we're going for things that you can prove through documentation and nice. actual evidence. So I'm a big supporter of of that movement. Um, you should potentially think about speaking to Robert Drysdale about the true history of uh, jiu-jitsu, um, in particular Brazilian jiu-jitsu, because there's a lot of lies and misinformation that was sown by. Um, certain players uh, yeah. i won't even mention them but everyone knows who they are um so yeah, yeah. I, if you want i can put you in touch with him because he's doing some good work with that yeah i i would love to and um yeah i, I would love to see someone like matthew Polly, who wrote the bruce lee biography or uh, alex gillis who wrote the the book on t- the real history of taekwondo called a killing art i'd love to see one of those two guys tackle maybe the gracie family yeah uh, because there would be a lot of interesting stuff there <laughs> Yeah, the the truth's going to come out sooner or later, that's for sure. (laughs) Richard, thanks again, my man, and uh, hopefully we'll do another episode in the future. Sounds good. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you guys figured out very quickly what a a cool guy Richard is. Just got a good energy, like a, there's a sense like a, a gentleness about him, which is really, really cool. You know, there's no airs or graces. He's not trying to prove anything, just just a decent guy. And, um, I really appreciated his time. The thing that I, as I said in the show, I didn't make myself very uh, clear in the show, but you know, this, the root of burnout is, is a lack of self-worth because if you value who you are, you will never push too hard. Right. You'll never, because pushing too hard usually comes from a place of feeling like you, you have to, earn your place in the world or earn or or pay your dues as a human being right which is you know i guess there's something to that and we all have to you know on this journey of life we all have to kind of i don't want to say pay our way but there's certain things we have to do and, and certain growth that we have to undergo but the point i'm trying to make is that it can either come from a healthy place or an unhealthy place and when you're burned out it's usually from an unhealthy place it's usually from i'm not good enough or i have to prove to people that i'm worth being here or worth having this 
And that almost invariably results in negative outcomes. It's almost like, you know, that you can either be motivated by fear or love, right? So if you love what you're doing and that's why you're working so hard, you don't get burned out. You just keep working harder and harder because it's enjoyable, right? But if you're motivated by the fear of I'm going to lose my job or I'm not good enough, that's a very, very different thing. And that does always, almost always result in burnout or something negative. So I think it's really important to understand and differentiate between those two. You guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the show. Uh, I've got another one coming for you next week. Until then, please leave a review on iTunes or spread the word if you enjoyed this episode of the show. And if you're interested in coaching or ayahuasca, head on over to my site, liberationmentor.com, and you can find out more information there. Until next time, guys, love and light. Love and light.